0: In the midst of tragedy, and uh, sometimes we don't know how to react. Sometimes we mourn. Sometimes we get angry. Uh, Sometimes we pray. Um, I I think many of us rightly want change. We want the world to be a different kind of place than it is. Uh, I do. I do. I mean, I I heard the sirens. I live close enough. We want the world to be a different kind of place. Uh, But we can't make the world a different kind of place overnight. So the question we have to answer is, how do we live beautiful lives in a broken world? This broken world. How do we live beautiful lives that are a blessing, maybe even a means of healing for other people? And we've been looking uh, at the letter to Galatians all semester. And it's discussed in pretty clear detail all that Jesus has done for his people. How He makes them right. He gives his life to take our sins, to grant his righteousness that God the Father might look at us and declare us to be right. Then he adopts us into the family. He sets us free. And we've been looking, uh, starting last week, at how he then begins to grow us and change us and make us more beautiful like Jesus. And uh, as I said last week, we're going to talk about that for four weeks. How do we grow? How do we become more beautiful like Jesus? And uh, as we'll see in our text... This is uh, put forward to us in in Paul's description as fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And when we're connected to Jesus, our life begins to look beautiful, to bear fruit. And uh, that that fruit sort of breaks down in a couple different ways. Uh, It's the reparation, the repair of different kinds of relationships. Our relationship with God is broken. So part of the fruit is a different looking relationship with God the Father and with one another and even within our own selves. So the fruit breaks down that way God word, people word, not sure that's a word, self word, I'm just making up stuff. Um, And tonight we'll look at what it looks like for God to begin to repair and beautify the relationship we have with God the Father. It looks like love, joy, and peace. And those are just, I mean, those three words are all so beautiful, and you've heard them so much, you're like, I don't know what you think. You might think, like, Christmas time. Red bows. But here's the deal. Those are all things that everyone wants. We all want love, joy, and peace, right? Everybody wants love, joy, and peace. And the world needs it. All those things, right? Let's look at uh, how Paul advises we grow in them. I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 16, and skip around a little bit, okay? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh or against the spirit, the desires of the spirit or against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now skipping down to verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Lord Jesus, we ask you to be kind, to sharpen our minds and soften our hearts. On a week where our hearts are haywire, heavy laden, minds are tired, maybe dull, uh, we need you, and uh, we need you to be kind, to show up, and uh, grant us hope, Lord. Not only that there's change for the world out there, but there's change for us right in here. That you could make us beautiful like you, and that can make a difference to those around us. I ask those things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were a uh, a child growing up in the '90s, and you weren't. Um, You would have met, uh, on cable, which is what everyone had, Uh, TBS in particular, which is what everyone watched, Uh, you would have met Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Conan the Barbarian was filmed in 1982. Frankly, not a very good movie. Uh, A really good soundtrack, though. You should just listen to the soundtrack, skip the movie. Anyway, the movie starts with uh, Conan, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, when he wasn't governor, or after the governor, or the Terminator. Anyway, it starts with... uh, Basically, a village being ransacked and this young boy's family being killed before he's abducted and taken away. That's how the movie begins. This movie only has lots of grunts and sword fights and almost no, no dialogue. So when the narrator speaks, it sounds, like, eh, it sounds like some old dude that smokes a lot. Narration would come in like every five minutes and it would say, like, after all the action, his was a tale of sorrow. So that's how the movie starts. And he is taken along with other slaves uh, far off, and they finally arrive at this strange apparatus to which he is chained. It's called the Wheel of Pain. He is basically condemned to trudge a circle, pushing this giant wooden wheel mile after mile, day after day, season after season. As you watch the beginning of the movie, pretty quickly you note the passage of time. Sun comes up, sun goes down, seasons change from a boy to a teenager, always head down, trudging, trudging, trudging. Until all of a sudden, he's a full-grown man, uh, strong of body, strong of mind, pushing the wheel by himself, doing the work of a dozen men. Thus, Conan the Barbarian. Anyway, I tell you all that to think, to say, this is how some of us think about spiritual growth. Hang with me. <laughs> we think spiritual growth is a grind. Mile after mile, rep after rep, until we become powerful and self-sufficient. It's up to me, alone, to do it, and I've got to do it so that I can be self-sufficient, so I can push the wheel all by myself. And uh, last week, we looked at the nature of the conflict that we're in, and it's, mo- it's internal, that we have warring desires. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we didn't talk about this last week, but, but Paul actually gives us marching orders in the middle of the conflict. He, he tells us that we have to do some things. And, and it sounds like, crucify your flesh and walk. He says that three times, walk, walk, walk. You put crucify and walk, walk, walk together, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the wheel of pain, right? Doesn't it sound like the wheel of pain? It does. But I think a different metaphor actually fits much better. Because the walk of Christian growth is not one that you do alone. You don't do it alone. And the goal is not self-sufficiency. We do this with someone else to be like Jesus. And so we're going to see tonight that to grow Godward, to have increasing in us the beauty of Jesus and his love and his joy and his peace, it entails us doing a daily dance A daily dance of repenting and believing and fighting. So here's your outline tonight. We'll talk about the wartime waltz, love for God, joy in God, and peace of God. Okay. And uh, for illustrative purposes, I've asked for some helpers. I don't usually do this, but but tonight uh, I've asked a few helpers. Um, Whenever you guys are ready, you can come on up. Yeah, yeah. You guys are nervous. I can feel it. Not them. You are. They're fine. You're nervous. So these are professionals, actually. They know what they're doing. You don't need to be, you, you don't need to be nervous for them. You may proceed as you like. So, so um, for a review, Paul introduces us in verse 17 to the reality of a conflict, that there are desires warring within us. If you're a Christian... You have competing desires. There's the flesh at work in you. This is your old selfish nature. And it wants what it wants. But also within you is the spirit at work, giving you new desires to love God and love others. And these desires war against one another. The text says they're in opposition to each other. And uh, that was beautiful. And, uh, And in this war, we're given these directives. Crucify the flesh walk in the spirit. And that sounds like a terrible two step. Just crucify and uh walk, crucify and walk. But I contend actually what Paul wants us to do is the waltz. Three steps. Three steps with another person, with the Holy Spirit. And the steps are to repent, believe and fight. So tonight I'm going to talk about that that waltz of repenting, believing and fighting and what that looks like in like in general and then we're going to apply it to love and joy, and peace. Love will take a while. It's really important. Joy and peace will go really quick. Okay, so uh, what does it mean to repent? And look, I, uh, I know already I say the word repent, some of you are like, eh, it hurts you. And, and, and on the heels of tragedy, eh, it double hurts. Um, but I can't get around the necessity of it in this text. And I want to contend in, in, in the long view, you can't do the beautiful waltz without repenting. So, hang with us here. Uh, repenting, what does it mean? And, and Paul here in verse 24 says that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. They've proverbially nailed part of their selfish nature to the cross to leave it there. And uh, simply meaning, simply put, to repent means to turn, it means to change your mind. To start, to, to be going one way and stop and go the other. And uh, it's really clear in the Bible that this is not just behavioral. It's not just what you do. That what is at stake here is much deeper. It goes down to the heart. Um, Paul says here, it's, it's crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. We've got to get down past behavior to the heart, to the wants, to the desires. That's where the real battle is taking place. And that this is not just work that someone else does, that we have to do it. There's a, there's a part of us that we have to do this. And you might be sitting here thinking, like, I don't know if I like this. This sounds like angry preacher dude. Um, you, you agree that Jesus is loving, right? This is Jesus. And his, one of his broader invitations to listeners, he said, If anyone would come after me, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me those are all hard words take up your cross deny yourself and follow me in other words to follow him you have to say no to yourself you actually have to say no to yourself to follow him that is repentance and if it sounds beautiful when jesus says it but ugly when i say it i'm sorry but i get it he's more beautiful than me um Getting deep down to the heart, past the behaviors uh, means, this is the the thought of Tim Keller, a pastor, we have to identify and then dismantle the idols in our hearts and then strangle the sin at the motivational level. And what that means is not only do you have to figure out what you're doing that might be wrong, you need to figure out what's the want behind what you're doing. What do I want? Okay, I'm doing this and I've never done this before, what am I hoping this gives me? What do I really believe this is going to accomplish for me? Why do I want this? And then ask, why do I think this will work that way? Get down in the heart and begin to mo- examine it and say, what, is, what do I really think this is going to accomplish? So the first step of the waltz is to regularly repent. To, to count yourself, If you're, this, is, this is the Christian behavior, to count yourself dead to sin. And it did to you. To never make peace with sin. Not to excuse it. You're going to experience it. You're going to have temptations. You're going to make mistakes. It's part of reality. But, but you don't make peace with it. In the end, your sinfulness, your selfishness, it's, it's out to make you miserable. It really is. It's out to kill you. By itself, unchecked, it will ruin your relationships. You, it's in your best interest to declare war on it. And remember that Jesus died to set you free from this. It's your enemy, not your friend. So repentance has to be part of the, part of the step, part of the dance. It's the first step. It's not the only one. The second one is to believe. And uh, just by way of shorthand, Paul here sort of reminds us in verse 24, we've got a lot to believe, and it's really good news. Those who belong to Jesus. That's just part of the truth. If you're a Christian, you belong to someone. That's just really good news because that means he actually wants you. Uh, I mean, he doesn't have to want you. (laughs) You've made lots of mistakes. We often live lives for ourselves. We don't often seek to serve him. And yet he wants us enough to send his son to live for us. And what we say throughout Galatians is God loved his people so much that he sent his son to live for us and and to make us right, to die for us, and to adopt us into the family. That's what belonging means. And belonging means we actually belong to him more than we belong to ourselves. Let that one sink in. That one hurts college students. That we belong to him, well then we belong to ourselves. Because now you're here and you're like, I get to do my thing. I love my independence. And I get it because I was like that from the womb. And it's still a huge problem for me. But we we believe that we belong to Him, that He wants us. And we believe we're not by ourselves in this. Verse 18 says we're led by the Spirit. Verse 25 says we live by the Spirit. We're not alone in this. It's not all up to us. God is present and active in our lives right now. And if you're a Christian, that means He's working in you. Gently but surely. Granting you new desires. Desires to love Him. Desires to love others. Desires to draw close to Him. And uh, that's the way the, the Holy Spirit works in us. It leads us in the way. If you know what that, that way generally looks like? It looks like Scripture. It doesn't look like you trying to read the tea leaves. God's Spirit works by the Word. It, it makes us look beautiful like Jesus. In the end, it looks like loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the route the Spirit is aims to guide us on. And, and so, if we're going to waltz, live the way we're supposed to, we need to be willing to repent and we need to believe that these things are true, that He wants me and He's at work in me. And we need to trust that's true. Lastly, we have to fight. Repent, believe, fight. Three steps, okay? Uh, and, and verse 16, Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, I, I think the Scriptures here are really clear that you get a choice. There's a, there's a couple of paths you can take. Any given day, any given time, you can choose to serve yourself or you can choose, That's a hard choice, uh, to walk in by the Spirit in God's ways. And I think Scripture is actually realistic that this is like a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, ever-present struggle. Like, it's, it's almost never easy. When you're sleeping, maybe it's easy. Um... That's about it, though. Like, All throughout the day, we have a choice of whether or not to do what we want or to seek to love God and love others. And Sometimes it's not so hard, and sometimes it's really hard. In general, though, to fight, to fight, to live this kind of life, to repent, believe, and fight over and over and over, to do this, you have to gather all the resources you have available to you. You can't do this every day well unless you have at your disposal all the rich resources that you have, And uh, there's a great example of what this looks like in Thor Ragnarok. So, if you remember, what? If you remember, uh, after Thor is captured by the Grand Master, he is thrown into the holding pen where he meets who? He meets Korg. Why is Korg captured? As he explains, well, I tried to start a revolution, but I didn't print enough pamphlets. So hardly anyone turned up except my mom and her boyfriend, whom I hate. So that's why Korg is in prison, right? He didn't have enough resources at his disposal to carry off the revolution. And, and the battle that we're called to engage is nothing short of a revolution. Jesus is moved in by a spirit to make you a different kind of person, someone who naturally loves themselves and does their own thing, suddenly revolted to become someone that loves God and others first and you can't do this on your scant resources you need the rich resources of all that Jesus is and all that he's done and all his promises or you won't be able to do it you can't change on your own we have to know him and trust him deeply and walk in dependence on the spirit and when we do that it's a beautiful three-step walk that was beautiful right it was beautiful. It's a three-step waltz. You might not like it because it's hard. It is hard. You can't do it. How many of you can waltz? Show of hands. Yes. Yeah, that's t- three. Anyway, but you look at that and you think, oh, I can learn to do that. And it's beautiful. And that's the same is true of the waltz that we're called to, to repent, believe, and fight. We can do it. It's hard. But it's beautiful. All right, let's talk about love and joy and peace real quick. What's it look like to dance in such a way that we grow in these? And uh, it looks like love for God. So uh, I'm going to look at some other text real quick. In, in 1 John 4, we have this beautiful long passage. It's, it's infamously famous uh, because it's often taken out of context. But uh, starting in verse 7, where we're told that God is love. Uh, it's so good, I'll just read some of it. Beloved, let us love one another. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also Ought to love one another. It's a beautiful text. I use it at the beginning of every wedding I preside. It's what I want people to know. Let me break it down, though. First, we encounter here the truth that God is love. Not love is God, that's something different. For many of us in our culture, love is God. Like love is a thing. I love love. But uh, this text is saying God is love. And that's actually a really profound theological statement. A, a God that exists by himself for eternity can't love. What's he going to love? Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons for eternity, existing in love. They had plenty to love, one another in their beauty, in their excellence, and they had so much love there was a a surplus to share with others. They created out of the surplus of love that they had. So God is love, and we also see in this text that He has loved. That he's loved us. That uh, that in this in this love, um, it was undeserved. It's what matters is not that we loved him, but that he loved us. It's mercy alone that moves God to do what he does. But we see two things here. This love was made manifest among us. God sent his son into the world. Love looks like Jesus coming. He didn't have to come. His world was every bit as brutal and nasty as ours. He didn't have to do it. He came and lived with us. And then verse 10 makes it clear that he loved so much that he was sent to be a propitiation for our sins. big, fancy word for sacrifice. Jesus willingly gave himself uh, to cover sin, to bear guilt, to, to deal with our sin problem, to make us right with God. That is God loving us in the person of Jesus. Uh, Paul puts it a different way in Galatians 2:20, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. He says, "The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God, this needs to be personal." who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a Christian, that's your story. You need to be able to say it and know it. Like, with some kind of, like, emotional existential reality in here every now and then. He loved me and gave himself for me. Me. Like me. So God's love, and he has loved us in Jesus, and because of that, we love. First John 4, verse 19. Simple. We love because he first loved us. It's just a simple factual statement. But it's an important one. If I believe Jesus actually loved me, I should love. I should. And then, and then John, disciple, knows Jesus well, doubles down immediately afterwards with the ultimate litmus test in verse 20. If anyone says I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. So now it gets real. You know, it's easy for some of us to say we love God. And and John's like, okay, good, good, good. Do you love anybody? Do you love anybody? That's what Paul's saying. That's what that's what John is saying here. Um it's it's easy for us to love people philosophically. Generally. Maybe humanistically, in some way out there. But do you actually love any persons, <laughs> like real, real persons? Like, and you can like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you love your little brother? Do you love your roommate? And I could keep going. But if, you, if I keep going for a long time and you're like, oh, no, no, no. 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 Maybe the guy don't footlock her. <laughs> that lady that takes swipe to my cards and market, she's pretty nice. Um, then, then, maybe, 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 you should examine whether or not you're passing this litmus test. Um, simply put, those that are loved by Jesus love God and love others. That's really clear in scripture. We didn't make up that love God, love others, love pit stuff. Like, that's just the Bible you know jesus was asked what 's the most important commandment one he said, "Love God, love others they 're the same commandment you can 't do one without the other and uh, so, how do we grow in love if love is so important, how do we grow in it? How do we grow in it and uh, I have a story to share i didn 't make this story up uh, it 's in luke seven and it's uh, it 's about a uh, a religious professional named Simon and it 's about a hooker who 's She's, she's a professional hooker, I guess. And, uh, uh, and one of these two will teach us about love. Okay? And uh, what happens is Jesus is having a dinner with a religious professional. And the meal is interrupted uh, by this prostitute who comes in. And uncontrollably emotionally, she begins to kiss his feet and wash his hair. And uh, the text tells us Jesus knows what everyone's thinking. And so he tells them a story about two people that owe a debt. Okay? And uh, both debts are forgiven One's larger than the other And we'll pick up the story real quickly In verse 42 Uh, When they could not pay He canceled the debt of both Which of them will love him more This is Jesus asking Simon The religious professional And Simon answered The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt And Jesus said to him You've judged rightly and then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. All right. So, what does this look like? I want to make this as clear for you as I can, and I can't. There's nothing to write with. Okay. Well, if I if I if I could write, I would do it. Anyone that can find me a dry erase marker in the next thirty seconds, I'll give you a five dollar bill. Anyway, the uh, <laughs> uh, it looks like it looks like this is not going to happen. I could write on there with a sharpie. <laughs> Dude, catch me later. (laughs) So, uh, he who's forgiven little loves little. He's forgiven much loves much. Um, Imagine you're a Christian, and this is the beginning of your Christian journey right here. And uh, what's normative is as we grow, this is God's law, this is our sin. As we grow over time, there's an echo in this corner. Um, Over time, what happens is we understand more and more how beautiful and holy God is, what His love looks like, and we understand more and more how much we sin. And so over time, we see, it's not that we actually are worse later in life, it's that we actually come to understand just how much He loved me to forgive all my sin. When I'm 15, I just think I'm a little jerk. But when I'm 32, 43, I realize really how much more of a jerk I am. And when I'm 65, I'll probably be an actually kinder old man, but I will still know even more how much of a jerk I am because I'll know more what God's beauty is like and I'll know more what my heart's like. So the way it's supposed to go is the opposite of the will of pain. The more I mature, the more I depend on him. The more I realize how much he loved me. We short-circuit this. We ruin this. And what we do is we come in and we take our sin and we excuse it. We excuse our sin and we say, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, if they hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have reacted that way. Or we minimize God's law. That law is not really important. That's completely cultural. Um... We, we sort of, oh, yes, if I was an adult, maybe that would matter, but, you know, I'm just cautioning We minimize it in such a way that we feel pretty good about ourselves, and what we do is we, we minimize our view of how much we need Jesus. Look, Scripture tells us Jesus loves us so much, he removes our sin as far as the east to the west. That's how much you actually need forgiveness because that's how much our need is from the east to the west. I mean, what I'm saying is you're much worse than you think you are. But we work really hard to minimize how how bad we think we are by lowering God's standards and excusing our sins so we can feel good about ourselves. But when you do that, you're stealing your opportunity to learn just how much Jesus loves you. Because he does love you enough to forgive all of that. What I'm saying is simply this. There's no way for you to grow in love for Jesus and for others that does not involve you taking your sin seriously. You have to take your sin seriously. You can't excuse it. You can't erase his law. You can't say it doesn't matter because you're shortchanging what he had to die for, what really reveals to you your need. You're shortchanging it. And when you take your sin seriously, what happens is you begin to realize, huh. I had a bigger debt than I thought. And I keep adding to it every day. But he forgave it anyway. That's how much he loves me. And you will not love him in response to, to, to an increasing magnitude unless you understand that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense? So, all I'm saying shortly is there is no way for you to grow in love if you don't take your sin seriously. Um, and I know we don't want to repent I know the word it's hard I know it's ugly but friends what it leads to is beautiful it leads to a more profound understanding of how much Jesus loved you and that makes you love him more it enables you to love others more oh no I'm out of time I still got two points to make All right, (laughs) I'm going to do it in four minutes joy and peace they often appear together actually they're two of Paul's very favorite words. I see you setting your alarm. And um, <laughs> we won't have time to look at it. You can do this on your own. They appear together in Philippians 4. And uh, man, joy, you need to know that it's reasonable. If you're a Christian, you have reasons for joy. Uh, you've been forgiven, your mistakes don't stick to you. You belong, you have a family now. No matter where you go, you have family. Uh, because you have a rich, kind father that delights to give you gifts, your life is a feast. God the Father loves you. He wants to give you good gifts. Life is a feast. And you have a future. If you're, if you're the king's child, you're an heir. He's going to bring you home. He's going to make you beautiful like his own son, use you to bless the world, and then bring you home. Man, that's, that's reason to rejoice, right? What are the enemies of joy? What do you need to be on the lookout for? Um, two one seeking joy in excess Paul talks about this in in the weeds earlier I can find joy all I gotta do is forget myself and all my troubles enough people enough of the right chemicals and I can be alright for tonight and there's another enemy of joy and uh, it's self-pity it's self-pity it is it is that inward sinking and then practiced rehearsal of all the things that are wrong in your life. And if you're a Christian, it's also therefore a refusal to look up and out at all the good things that God has still given you every day. Joy is beautiful. It's something worth fighting for. Uh, and you can have it. What's it look like in our group? It looks like having a Halloween party that's so awesome. When people walk down the street, they want to get in. <laughs> and when you tell them there's no alcohol, they don't believe you. That's what joy looks like, guys. We can do that. It's beautiful, right? Let's talk about peace real quick. Peace starts with the fact that God made peace for you. There's no longer any enmity between you and the Father. You cannot have peace if you think God's against you. If you're not convinced God's for you, you want to have peace. But once you understand that he's for you, you can know his Peace. And in Philippians 4, I'll leave this to you to look up later on your own. You're encouraged with all your anxious fears to go and pray. All your anxious fears, because he's at hand, he's near. He hears your prayers. And then he says something really cool. That when you do this, the peace of God guards your hearts. I love that military image. Like the image is like literally God's peace like marching around my anxious heart. And I think it's actually sort of what he means. There's a sense in which when we know God's for us and hand over to him our anxious fears, he actively works to protect our hearts. And fighting for that, friends, is really important. It really is. I mean, You have to remember all the things that are true of you, that give you peace. God has loved you. You didn't deserve it. You're his child. You belong. He's got your future in his hands. And uh, yeah, you don't know the future. You can't make it happen. But he's for you. And he ends his text in Philippians 4 telling us to remember these things and think on them. That's fighting, friends. Not letting the litany of anxious fears and worries take over your mind and drag you down to the pit of despair. That is fighting. It is. And repenting is refusing to go there and wallowing in self-pity. And believing is remembering all that Jesus has done for you and all that he's doing right now to make you beautiful. Well, I had a humdinger of a closing illustration, but I'm not going to do it. Instead, that's right, despair, You can pray for me that I'll learn to manage my time better. Anyway, um, instead, uh, I just want to encourage you guys. I I know we want the world to change, I want the world to change too. I'm perhaps a little less idealistic than some of you in thinking that I can make it happen, at least quickly. That's not to say you shouldn't go be involved, you should go be involved. But I am incredibly optimistic that God is determined to change us, to make us beautiful like Jesus, to make us loving, peaceful, joyful people that look like his son. And that's what our world needs. It needs loving, joyful, peaceful people that love others. I'm optimistic, friends. That's what he's doing. That's what he wants to do in us. That's worth fighting for. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus